Welcome to The Point on WCAI. I'm Steve Junker. It's Friday, November 8th, and this is our weekly news roundup when we discuss some of the top local news stories of the week with colleagues in the print and digital media. Joining me from the Cape Cod Times is Ethan Genter. Good morning, Ethan. Morning, Steve. At least four Cape Towns have been subpoenaed for information around their agreements with marijuana companies. Tell us who's issued the subpoenas and what's the sense about what they're looking for here? Yeah, so it's the U.S. Attorney's Office, and they have sent subpoenas to at least Wellfleet, Mashpee, East Ham, and Provincetown. Um, so it's over these, they're called host community agreements. Um, between the towns and marijuana establishments, uh, places uh, like a dispensary or something like that. Um, so whenever a shop opens, they need, or before they even open, to open, you need to get an agreement with the town that you're trying to open in. That kind of lays out the rules of the road, um, the agreements between kind of uh, security measures, um, hours, and stuff like that. Um, usually it also includes money. Um, and the kind of ideal here is it's uh, people are saying or people are kind of guessing that the U.S. Attorney's Office is sending these out after what happened in Fall River uh, with the mayor who was uh, arrested uh, for allegedly extorting uh, companies. So that's the mayor, Jaisal Correa, former mayor, we should say, because he's yes, now he the, just lost. He just lost in the election, uh, and he's facing charges on, and as you say, extorting marijuana companies for the chance, really, to set up shop in the in the city of Fall River. And now the these subpoenas are. Uh, uh, what kinds of things are they looking for from the towns, and what kind of burden is this going to be for towns? You say, Wellfleet, Mashpee, East Ham, Provincetown. Um, yeah, so they're basically um, asking for anything around these agreements, um, early drafts of them, whatever they have now, any communications between towns and companies who are trying to set up shop. Um, and uh, a couple towns said it's going to be hard because uh, there's a lot of documents. Like Wellfleet has five host community agreements. Um, so you're thinking every iteration, every email sent, um, that's a lot to kind of go through, especially for a small town like Wellfleet. Um, for East Ham, actually, it's not going to be that hard because one of the one of the shops, uh, funnily enough, uh, asked for a lot of this similar information um, from its competitors because uh, these are all public documents, um, which is kind of weird that they're subpoenaing things that you can ask for uh, mm-hmm. normally. Um, but um, yeah, so East Ham already had to compile most of this stuff uh, for a public records request by one of the companies trying to make sure they have the total lay of the land. For some of these marijuana businesses, uh, they've kind of pushed back a little bit here on these host community agreements themselves, particularly, I think, the monetary component. A lot of these agreements have money component of the ta- of the retailers uh, paying the town or coming up with funds for the town. Yeah, so, um, so state law lays out that you can you can specifically ask for it's called a community impact fee which is up to three percent of the company's gross sales in the first five years that they're open um it should be uh important to note that there are no recreation places open on the cape at the moment um there's one medical um so and and there's one recreational in wareham and there's one now on nantucket but none on the cape itself correct yeah um, so, but yeah, like you said, they're not as much on the Cape, but there have seen to be some instances where 
towns are basically kind of asking for the world um, from these companies, and these companies don't have a lot of, unless you don't want to do business, it's kind of hard to go to the town board and say, well, no, we won't supply that. Um, some of the some of the examples of stuff that people have asked for here on the Cape, um, Brewster has asked for a $25,000 annual community benefit payment. Um, there's been uh, asked for local charity donations, uh, donations into funds that will then go to charities. Um, Provincetown asked for 100 hours of community service. Um, I mean, another thing in these agreements um, that is kind of unique to our community is Provincetown is uh, actually required businesses to stay open year round. You can get like a month, I think, period to be closed, but uh, that's something kind of unique uh, out here. Uh, let's move on. I want to talk about Pilgrim Nuclear Power Plant, which was back in the news a couple of times over the past week or so. The federal agency that oversees nuclear plants has said that Pilgrim can reduce the size of its emergency planning zone. And this decision quickly drew a lot of criticism from Cape politicians and watchdogs. Yeah, absolutely. So um, for people out there who aren't up on their uh, nuclear uh, lingo, an emergency planning zone is something that was uh, established in 1978. Um, and it basically kind of gives this 10-mile radius zone where you have to kind of have plans for accidents, incidents, anything that could kind of go wrong uh, with reactors. Um, and so people were really pushing back because this 10-mile radius got pushed down from 10 miles around the, uh, the plant, which uh, that encompasses Plymouth, Kingston Carver, I think Duxbury, and Marshfield. Um, it, so it kind of goes down from this very large area to just the uh, Pilgrim property line, which is a, obviously much smaller. And this has to do with the fact that the Pilgrim plant has just changed hands, right? It's gone over to this new company, Holtec, and it's gone, I guess it really has to do with the fact that it's closed down. And it closed down uh, May 31st, and and now it's, because it's no longer operating, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which is the federal agency overseeing this, says that it's not as much of a safety hazard. Yeah, I mean, yeah, so the commission said they're kind of satisfied with how Holtec uh, is kind of has safety precautions in place. They're they're satisfied with the the spent fuel pools um, and other safety measures. Um, but <clears throat> as almost always with Pilgrim, a lot of people are still worried. Um, uh, Senator Markey and Senator Warren both came out against this. Um, State Senator DiMasito uh, has come out against it. Um, so you have both sides of the party line there. Um, so, yeah, it does have a lot of people concerned, uh, as well as watchdogs, who are still worried that um, a lot of people are worried with Holtec not having tons of experience in decommissioning a power plant. Um, and this, which, this sort of touches on the other story that came out this week, which is about the state's attorney general filing a motion in appeals court and pushing them back against the decision to let this company, Holtec, come in and try to decommission the plant. And she's got concerns about this. Yeah, she filed um, an appeal in, yeah, like you said, in, in U.S. court, uh, district court, or appeals court, actually, um, trying to stop this transfer until kind of more things are figured out and making sure that Holtec is able to handle this uh, operation. Um, the NRC, the Nuclear Reg uh, Regulatory Commission, hasn't really been on board with those arguments. Um, they've kind of been letting Holtec go about their business here. Um uh, yeah. So the think, NRC um, hasn't really even said anything. I think that it, it, it's almost like they keep saying, well, it's in litigation, so we can't respond. 
but Mara Healy has been pushing hard and trying to up the game to get the courts to intervene to let the state try to set some boundaries around this or backstop. She has concerns about how much this whole process is going to cost and if Holtec defaults, whether it all falls to the taxpayers and and also even questions about how truthful Holtec has been as a company. Yeah, I mean, Holtec has been in trouble in the past um, and there's worries that the, the fund that they have set up to do this decommission won't get them across the finishing line. And like you said, kind of where does that leave the surrounding towns with a new uh, kind of a nuclear power plant kind of in the middle um, not being totally shut down. What does that mean if you don't have enough money uh, to do it? Um, the state has made, uh, state officials have made several tries to kind of get their foot in the door in this whole license transfer process. Um, in February, the Executive Office of Energy and Environmental Affairs uh, and the Attorney General filed a petition to intervene in the commission's review. Uh, state officials also asked for public hearings on this, um, uh, but nothing's really materialized. It's kind of gone ahead. And Holtec kind of in the end just says, well, the NRC said it was – they looked at our record and they say it's okay and that's kind of where they're leaving it for themselves. Yeah, yeah absolutely. The town of Sandwich appears to have its last necessary permit now in hand to allow a major beach replenishment project to go forward. Tell us a little about this. Yeah, so it, this is all about Town Neck Beach, um, which is one of the major barrier beaches in the town, um, which I feel like uh, town officials have said, if we don't have a doom barrier there, um, you're putting homes and his, the historic center there kind of really in danger. Um, but so this new, uh, they, ha- they, they got their final permit, which is kind of a, a sigh of relief to a lot of town officials. Um, from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to move, uh, it's more than 220,000 cubic yards of sand from Scusset Beach over to Town Neck uh, via the canal. And the town is saying that this is really to redress a problem that that came about when the Army Corps of Engineers built the Cape Cod Canal and the long jetty that extends off of it, really, along uh, Town Neck Beach and stopped the what should be the natural migration of sand onto Town Neck Beach. Yeah, <clears throat> so they say that basically sand should be flowing from Scusset over to Town Neck, but because that jetty is there in the canal, it's kind of really stopping everything. Um, and the Army Corps is actually uh, even looking at if they should have some responsibility in this issue. They're going through a study right now, a uh, federal review kind of, in, which could be done by the end of this year um, to see if they should uh, take kind of more of a lead on this. Uh, I guess there's no. Uh there's no lack of proof that this is really important. Every winter storm in the last couple of years has produced more and more damage along Town Neck Beach, and the town has been sort of fighting a little bit of a, a, a holding pattern to try to keep it from doing too much damage. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, almost it's kind of a, one of those things you can tell the time of year because Sandwich is trying to get more sand uh, on their beaches. Uh, it's been an annual thing, at least in the almost six years that I've been here. Um, it's kind of always been a regular fight. And and this fight um, for uh, Town Neck, uh, they're going to have – this is kind of a first phase. There's going to be at least a couple of other parts um, where they're going to be trying to get more sand out there to kind of shore things up. And this the, – the big project that we are talking about here is, is really kind of – they're hoping a long-term fix for all of this. Yeah, Absolutely. In Provincetown, there's a proposal for workforce housing that includes almost 30 dormitory-style units. I did kind of a double-take when I read that. Tell us about this. Yeah, um, so Provincetown, 
um, like a lot of towns on the Outer Cape, really rely on a lot of seasonal workers, a lot of J-1 visas, um, foreign workers, H-2B, another style of visa. Um, and the pro- real problem is there's not a lot of places to live out there. Um, housing has become uh, incredibly hard to get. And when you can get it, it's incredibly expensive. Um, a lot of people are pointing to short-term rentals. But this um, proposal by uh, it's a, by a family that owns uh, marine specialties out there, if you ever go down on Commercial Street, they're, they're proposing to build, yeah, like you said, 28 dorm- uh, dormitory-style units, five studio apartments, nine one-bedroom apartments, and one three-bedroom apartment out on uh, Route 6. Um, and so a lot of people uh, think this could be pretty helpful. Um, there isn't a whole lot of dedicated workforce um, housing in Provincetown, um, which has been what a lot of people have said could be a real issue and could be kind of a canary in the coal mine for the town. Uh, the Your article sort of points out how difficult it has been for even this one family to to get and retain workers through the summer and always the kind of pointing back to the housing issue as the big issue that makes it so difficult. Yeah, I mean, there's not a lack of jobs in Provincetown, especially come summer. Um, it's finding places that you can live and affordably live. Um, uh, UMass Dartmouth did a study last year and it came out and said that to to have an affordable rental income versus the 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 median rental price versus the median income is about there's about a sixteen thousand dollar gap, and owning a house I think is uh, it's around like seventy thousand dollar gap. Um, so it's not like you can just pick up an extra shift here or there. It's um, sizable gap between actually being able to afford. And actually live out there. This workforce housing that's being proposed here with the dormitory-style units and the studio apartments and one-bedroom apartments, the idea here is that all of them will be basically what's affordable to to people who are working there either year-round or through the summer. Yeah, I mean, they're looking at – I had talked to – so this is the Patrick family that's doing this. um, And they were looking at dorms costing about $3,500 for a season – um, per person, uh, about four people in a dorm, uh, and then apartments running between a thousand and fifteen hundred, which is kind of the going rate, um, and probably even a little cheaper than Provincetown normally is. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just trying to get. Um, I mean, it seems there's a real condoization of Provincetown, making things kind of the highest price you can get, short-term rentals making the most money you can squeeze out in a in one season. Um, but it's kind of leaving people who trying to work and live there out in the cold. And if you don't have enough people to work there, then people kind of see that as kind of a slippery slope to the death of the town. And the Patrick family pointing out that if they wanted to, they could certainly get more money out of this property that they're proposing to develop this on, that you know, they could they could condoize it, as you say, and uh, it would be worth a lot more than building workforce housing. Yeah, I mean, it, but it also, I mean... Uh, helps businesses. So, I mean, you're kind of, I mean, you're not going to make a lot of money right off the bat, but they're also talking about possibly doing parts, a uh, portion of that, um, this new proposal, building uh, on Route 6 as short-term rental to kind of subsidize. So you do part of this um, facility housing complex as short-term rentals, subsidizes the rest of the rents in there, uh, we'll see if that actually happens or if that works out. Um, but it is kind of a novel approach. 
speaking of a novel approach, I want to, before we let you go, I want to ask you about one other story that you reported this week, kind of a novel story about how an embargo on ebooks is keeping many library patrons waiting for the newest books. Yeah. <clears throat> so if you um, if you use the CLAM system, which is the kind of the Cape Library system uh, across, th- there is an, um, you, there's an online portal where you can get ebooks and e audio books. Um, and if you're trying to get the new hottest book, it may take a while because uh, two big publishers, one of ebooks and one of e audio books, has put new rules limiting kind of how libraries can get new books. Uh, Macmillan Publishers uh, put a limit. You can only buy one copy of a newly released ebook from their publishing house for the first eight weeks. Um, and then Blackstone Audio had put a, I believe it's a 90 day embargo. Um, so you can't get a new title, certain titles, you can't get a new audio book uh, for the library system for, I think it's 90 days. And so, I mean, these companies are saying this is, we're trying to balance between getting more sales and making it available to everybody. Libraries say this is really going to make the waiting lines, I mean, could be years, uh, possibly, if you, cause if you count the two weeks. So uh, one of the things that's in this story, which you reported, which I think is so interesting, is about uh, how many more people are using e-books and e-audio books through the Cape Library system. Yeah, so in 2018, Clams reported that there was 400... Uh, 407,000 plus uh, checkouts and renewals of ebooks and e audiobooks. Uh, Provincetown saw a 41% jump year over year uh, from last year to this year in ebooks, 35 in e audiobooks. Um, I think a lot of people, it is very convenient. Um, it's right off your phone, right off your iPad, wherever you are. You can do it. You don't have to go to the library. Um, and then after your two weeks is up, it returns it automatically. So you don't have to worry about. Oops, I forgot this book, uh, <laughs> I forgot this audiobook, uh, and it's the library closes in 10 minutes. Um, so, yeah, it is, it is super convenient. I use it myself. Um, and, uh, yeah, they, the Clams has signed on to a petition um, kind of arguing against this embargo with the American Library Association. Um, so we'll see if uh, any changes are actually made uh, over on the publishing side. Ethan Genter from the Cape Cod Times. Ethan, thanks for joining us this morning. Hey, thanks so much, Steve.